When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is a Patreon request. If you would like to request future episode topics, then you can do so by heading over to the Patreon and joining the Alderman tier. I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 39, Trade and Towns in Anglo-Saxon England. As historians, we thrive on the material culture of the past. You don't need to be an historical materialist to recognise that without material culture, our understanding of history is severely limited. Objects are the raw material from which we make history. What then do objects tell us about the development of Anglo-Saxon history and society? When we look at this, we can chart the material evolution of Anglo-Saxon England from a migrant society of farmers to a kingdom with towns and villages. At the centre of all of this lies the circulation of objects in what we call trade. Why is trade important? It's a good question. Trade is part of the larger phenomenon of subsistence. Subsistence referring to supporting oneself at a minimum level needed to survive and continue to support oneself. If we can't do this, then of course we die. But subsistence can be difficult to maintain. If crops fail, if livestock die, if tools break, or if neighbours keep attacking you, then how can you reliably support yourself? That's where trade comes in, or more properly, exchange. Exchange is a means to ensure subsistence for a large group by pooling resources and engaging in mutual aid. In the earliest Anglo-Saxon settlements, exchange was a key part of not only keeping the community alive, but also building bonds with other communities. These bonds eventually grew into cultural and then political alliances, which paved the way for the emergence of kingdoms. The archaeological evidence for the earliest Anglo-Saxon communities suggests that they generally engaged in subsistence agriculture, but that vital and valuable materials, like metal and pottery, were exchanged between communities. This encouraged craft specialisation within communities, so for example if one community made really good tools and another made really good pottery, they would exchange tools and pottery. Archaeology suggests that these early communities were largely self-sufficient, but would trade locally with each other as needed. Where trade over longer distances came in, though, was when it came to luxury goods. 
As the evidence of furnished graves from this period indicates, the societies of early Anglo-Saxon England were not egalitarian. There was clearly an elite who displayed their wealth through ostentatious dress and military gear. Of course, it makes sense that military force was needed to ensure the survival of communities when neighbours couldn't be mollified. To get the luxury goods displayed by these elites, communities would need to have a surplus of raw material. These materials could then be traded for luxury goods like beads, jewels and gold. Some of these luxury goods came from the continent. Kent especially had good access to these materials, since Kentish ports seem to have attracted Frisian and Frankish traders with goods from as far afield as the Mediterranean. Elsewhere in England, particularly in the east and the north, luxury goods seem to have entered the earliest settlements via contacts back across the North Sea with Scandinavia. Amber, crystal and walrus ivory came to the Anglo-Saxons from their ancestral homelands, which it seems were never that distant from the memories of the migrants in England. It's very probable that while we talk about the migration and imagine it as this great break moment between the Anglo-Saxons and their ancestors on the continent, very probably sailing and trade and communication continued between the settlers in England and the communities back in Scandinavia. It's through these that the traditional luxury goods of those Scandinavian communities would then enter England and circulate among the English. It is probable that the leaders of these early Anglo-Saxon communities sought out these luxury goods and purchased them using the surplus of raw materials that their communities produced. Why they did this, and why it was tolerated, is suggested by the tropes of Old English heroic literature. The elaborate gift economy of something like Beowulf makes it clear that the wealth a leader accumulated was expected to recirculate back into the community via gift-giving. It also benefited the community by attracting eager young warriors willing to defend it. These political and social transactions, although perhaps odd to us today, were seen as essential in the period. This reminds us that man is not just an economic creature, he also has non-material impulses, which may not make logical sense, but which nevertheless are essential to him. Exactly when the warlords and chieftains of the early settlements became kings is unclear. Probably it is best to think of it as a spectrum rather than a simple binary distinction. One important change was the spread of Christianity, since the church brought with it literacy and, with this, the memory of Roman bureaucracy. As the church spread and leaders recognised the political benefits of aligning with it, so too they began to expand their bureaucratic apparatus. This led, by the 7th century, towards greater centralisation. In tandem with this also came the earliest coinage in the form of the silver sheaters. The emergence of coinage and the rise of literate bureaucracy all indicates that trade and the regulation of trade lay at the heart of the emergence of the earliest kingdoms. Prior to the emergence of coinage, exchange was seemingly done without coins at all. The exact means of how it worked, though, is unclear. Since the days of Adam Smith, it has been assumed that pre-industrial societies relied heavily on barter, that is, the exchange of goods or services for goods or services of equal value. However, it is debated whether or not the barter system like this ever actually existed, since anthropologists have never found such a system in operation, or at least they've never found a situation where that was the primary means of exchange. What anthropologists do find more consistently, though, is the gift economy, 
in which goods and services are exchanged without an explicit expectation of immediate or future reward, in other words, as a gift. Instead, deep cultural mores regulate the giving of gifts and their reciprocation. In Anglo-Saxon cultural memory, as already noted, we find the memory of a gift economy such as this. For example, it was understood that if a lord gave a gift to a warrior, by accepting it the warrior took on certain obligations to that lord and his people. This is not an exchange of items of equal value, rather it's a cycle of mutual giving. While we usually have references to the exchange of gifts in elite circles, anthropological studies suggest that similar logics of the gift would have operated throughout Anglo-Saxon society prior to the emergence of coinage in the 7th century. Hey podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Hello listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I just wanted to let you know that if you enjoy what I'm doing here, then it really helps me when you leave a review or a rating of the podcast on the podcast provider that you're using to listen to this. It also helps when you subscribe to the show's YouTube channel, and when you become a supporter over on Patreon, where you can get access to bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, and transcripts by pledging to one of the show's patron tiers. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, 
Another benefit you can get is the ability to request the topics of future episodes. So if that's something you're interested in, then by all means head over and pledge. Speaking of patrons, I want to give a shout out to Janet Anderson, David Tew, Anne Hansen, and Ian Whitmore, who recently became patrons. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope that you're enjoying the extra material you now have access to. Anyway, back to the show. By the 8th century, kings were attempting to exert more control over trade and the mining of raw materials. One example of a king attempting to monopolise trade in a luxury good is Athelbald's monopolisation of the salt trade at Droitwich. If you'll go back to the episode on Athelbald in the Mercian series, you can learn more about that. The extent to which they could do this is debatable, since traditional markets and fairs with their gift-giving logic probably continued in manners that made them ungovernable. But nevertheless, kings sought to control the trade which was the lifeblood of their new kingdoms. They did this by trying to monopolise the trade of valuable commodities, as well as by concentrating the accumulation of trade goods in specific places called emporia in Latin and wicks in Old English. These wicks were among the first towns in Anglo-Saxon England. Before we go on, let's define a town. A town in this period can be identified as a concentration of people engaged in crafts, trade and industry who are supported by the surrounding agricultural population. With this in mind, it's important to make a distinction between urban life and life in towns. The Romans had urban life in the true sense just given. Early Anglo-Saxons and post-Roman Britons seem not to have had this, although some did still live within the walls of former Roman towns. It seems that instead of relying on outside agriculture, though, these people brought agriculture with them into the walls, and thus were not really living an urban life in the true sense of the word. The urban life of the empire, then, was largely gone. Roman towns were reoccupied in the 7th century, but mainly by monks, who were keen to use their walls and stone buildings as fortifications and as sources of building material. The growing wealth of these monasteries and minster churches were what eventually led to the full revival of urban life in England in the 9th century. However, for much of the period up to this point, urban life was seemingly dead. One possible exception to this, as I already mentioned, was the Wicks. Early Wicks included, in addition to Droitwich, Ipswich, Southampton and the settlement of London Wick in what is now the Strand in London. All of these Wicks were built with easy access to waterways, which indicates the importance they played in international trade, an importance supported by the density of foreign goods found in their remains. They are also clearly the products of royal design, since several wicks display a neat regular layout which we do not see in communities that developed organically. This has led some scholars to characterise wicks as essentially funnels by which luxury goods could be imported into England for the consumption of the wealthy. The archaeological evidence suggests that these wicks at this time were essentially places where raw goods and materials could be collected from the countryside and stored, a fact which supports this traditional interpretation. However, wicks were not just ports or places of storage, they were also hubs for crafts and manufacture. 
In the remains of various wicks, we found evidence of wool production, smithing, leatherworking, and antlerworking, all suggesting that wicks were packed with artisans and craftspeople, making goods to be traded with the foreign merchants who came to England for its unique crafts and materials. During this time, England's main exports included a lot of wool and a lot of cloth, both of which were sought by Frankish and Frisian merchants. In return, they brought with them high-status pottery and glasswork, some of which had come from as far afield as the Mediterranean. It is debated, though, how much royal control was actually exerted over these wicks, as well as whether their populations were permanent or only seasonal. Wicks were not royal centres, they had none of the infrastructure associated with that, nor were they defensive communities since they often lacked walls. Wicks then may sound a lot like towns, but they lacked the diversity which characterises true towns. They seem to have lacked political and cultural hubs. Instead, wicks were purely economic settlements. This is partly why some scholars suggest that their inhabitants were seasonal rather than permanent, since once winter set in and travel by water became more difficult, it's hard to see how a community could have a decent quality of life in a wick. Coins, as I've said, pre-existed wicks, but the wicks became focal points for the creation and the use of coins in the 8th century. The evidence of coin hoards, though, shows that they were not limited to wicks. They travelled to the coast, probably to places where sailing merchants would lay out their wares, as well as to minster churches and hill forts, all indicating that coinage and trade were at this time extending out from the wicks and into the rest of the kingdom. The discovery of coin hoards and dress fissings from this time in open fields also suggests that markets and fairs were still hubs for local trade at traditional community meeting grounds, although at this point the economy of the gift was giving way to a coin-based economy. In the 9th century, the wicks went into steep decline. The most immediate reason for this was the impact of the Viking Age. Coastal wicks were prime targets for Norse raiders, especially since they lacked defensive fortifications, and so many of them collapsed. However, the artisans didn't disappear. They retreated to more defensible settlements, like minsters and royal villes. Some even moved to new wicks, which were made more defensible. It was also at this time that burrs began to emerge in southern and midland England as essentially proto-towns. Burrs were fortresses whose maintenance was first mandated in royal charters by offer, but who really became a focal point of royal policy under Alfred and his son Edward. This dispersal of artisans caused trade to become more widespread and laid the foundations for urban life to truly re-emerge in England. The towns which emerged in the 9th century had mints and markets as well as proper defences and political centres. They were often tightly planned, indicating a high degree of a royal oversight, such as was also seen in the previous wicks. Several also became the sites of royal mints. Indeed, many of these towns became the central towns of their own shires, as the shire system was expanded in the 9th and 10th century out from Wessex to include the rest of England. In other words, the burrs contained everything the wicks had, but expanded on it. There is no doubt that the population of the burrs was more permanent than that of the wicks. On the whole, though, it is difficult to say how many people lived in these towns year-round. The logic of the burr, as given in a document called the Burgle Hydage, was that they should serve as defensive structures for the surrounding communities. 
It was apparently Alfred's wish that no farm in England be more than 20 miles from a burr. As such, their economic and cultural components were initially secondary to their defensive purpose. Therefore, most people probably stayed in their ancestral communities, and the permanent population in Burrs was initially quite small. The evidence from Canterbury, for example, between the years 900 and 960, supports this interpretation, since it indicates a fairly low population density, with large gaps between the buildings possibly allowing for some minimal agriculture. Once the Burrs were established, though, there was never again another die-off of urban life in England, as had affected the Wicks. Unprotected villages with their primarily agricultural economy survived. It is difficult to tell, though, whether the gift economy of early Anglo-Saxon England survived into the 10th century. The spread of coins and coinage suggests that markets had begun to put down roots, and thus set the stage for feudalism, and eventually capitalism. So all of this should demonstrate that trade was really an important part of Anglo-Saxon history. Through the circulation of both raw materials and luxury goods, cultural structures and hierarchies developed and gave shape to the migrant communities of England. It also led to the return of urban life to England. It was a very slow return, certainly, but it was a return nevertheless. I don't think that we can reduce all of history to material conditions, but material conditions are certainly a key component of history. Indeed, they are the bedrock of history. Through examination of Anglo-Saxon trade, we can see how England developed and grew from a mass of tribal units to what we can easily recognise as a kingdom, with towns and a developed bureaucracy. The impulse which drove the development was a desire by elites to exert control over trade and claim the wealth it produced. It also becomes apparent that the Anglo-Saxons were never an isolated people. For as long as they were in Britain, they were trading, and a key cause of this was their ancestral ties to the continent. In Kent, which was dominated by Jutes and Frisians, elites traded with the Frisians who remained in their homeland as well as with the Franks. In eastern and northern England, trade links continued to unite the Anglian settlers with the peoples of Scandinavia and northern Germany. This influx of goods sustained the migrants and allowed them to develop more complex social structures. With the spread of Christianity, these were bolstered by literate bureaucracy, and eventually this gave rise to the Wicks. These hubs of trade and production were not true towns, but their artisans would establish seeds within the burrs which followed them and provided the economic component to those urban centres, which finally cemented the return of urbanism to England. Trade, then, built England. Not capitalist or even feudal trade, but mutual connection and interest was at the core of the Anglo-Saxon's social world from the beginning, and it was from that that everything else grew. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and I hope you will join me again next time. History is the greatest adventure story, but does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.